you to think about a time where you were the most scared, where you were the most frightened, all right? Uh, this question actually came up uh, for, for me, for us, earlier this week uh, in small group. Ironically, it wasn't that question. The question was about birthdays, uh, and it was, what was your most memorable birthday, which triggered uh, thought for me about when I was the most scared, which uh, is probably a bit traumatizing, but here's what happened. So uh, it was my 13th birthday. And uh, for my birthday party, I decided to have six or seven of my friends uh, come out to my grandparents for a weekend-long slumber party. All right, I thought this was going to be a great idea. Now, you see, I grew up in, in a city. I grew up in, in Dallas. I grew up in a housing project in the eastern side of the city, to be exact. And my grandparents, they lived out in the country, 45 minutes outside of the city. So I thought, this is going to be a great, uh, a great you know, exciting cool couple of days for some of us from the neighborhood to kind of pack up, make our way, uh, and hang out in the woods for a couple of days. You know, some of you are probably like, yeah, that wasn't going to work out to begin with, but here's what it was. It was the first night of the slumber party, and my uncle, Charlie, he said, hey, you know, he was kind of our de facto chaperone, and then once it got dark, my uncle says, hey, guys, let's go snipe hunting, to which we all replied, what's snipe hunting? Now, some of you uh, might recall a scene from the movie Up uh, where the Boy Scout Russell, where he like sets a snare. You guys know what I'm talking about? He sets a snare because he wants to catch a snipe. That's not what we were doing. All right, my uncle, uh, he explains to us that to hunt snipe, what you need is some, you just need like top shelf equipment. All right, and what that meant was you needed a grocery sack and a flashlight. Uh, so we said, all right, well, so we, you know, that's cool. So we got those together. And what you have to do is you got to wander around in the woods with a flashlight. We didn't have like a headlamp. We just had like the old school, you know, turn it on type jobs and then a, a sack. And, we, and this was a bit ago. I might be dating myself. We didn't have like the plastic ones. We just had the, you know, the noisy paper sacks. And that's what we're out in the woods. And the way that you catch a snipe is that you, you call them. And the way that you call them is you mimic a sound that sounds like their name. Anybody ever been snipe hunting? Just anybody? No, not just sort of none of you. Really perfect. I should take you sometime. Um, a snipe. That's a great question. A snipe. There is a legitimate bird called a snipe. But in snipe hunting, you're actually what you'll find. You're, it's, it's the way that you call snipe is <clears throat> I'll show you. Snipe. Snipe, snipe. You got me? So seven guys from East Dallas Projects were walking through the woods with a sack and, a, and we're like, snipe, snipe. You, 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 you guys give it a shot. Let me hear you. Come on. Oh, man, y'all are ready. Get the flashlights and the grocery sack. So we're out there. We, you guys are doing great. So after a few minutes of getting our sacks together, these you know, six 13-year-olds, we head out into the woods, and we are just peppering the woods with snipe, 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 and there's flashlights everywhere and the crinkle of paper grocery sacks. 20 minutes goes by, and then as we are deep into the woods, we hear a series of explosions, and then about 20 yards from us, and we see the silhouette of a man yelling at us, telling us he's going to kill us. 
I said, oh, man. So immediately, we forget snipe hunting. We drop our grocery sacks and our flashlights, and we tear back across the woods trying to figure out how to get back to Grandpa's house before this wild man hunts us down. Now, once we get to some brush, we start strategizing. Man, how are we going to get through here? Like, this dude is nuts. Like, what's going on? And where in the world is Uncle Charlie? Like, we ha- he's abandoned us. About a half hour later, after we've sort of sneaked our and snaked our way through the woods, we finally arrive back at my grandfather's house. And, you know, we've been trying to whisper and kind of show each other how brave we are, even though we're quite terrified. And when we get back to the house, there we see crazy man, my Uncle Charles and my grandfather, all sitting on the porch drinking beers, laughing at us. (laughs) To which we all replied, we knew it was a joke anyway. Which is absolutely not true. The most scariest moments that I've ever had. Now, I think when we read Mark 5, I think that's about how the disciples felt when they stepped off the boat, having crossed to the far side of the sea. In Mark 4, which Pastor Justin preached on last week, Jesus and the disciples there They're in a boat, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and they're heading westward. And during their westward voyage, a violent storm, a furious squall, as it says in Mark 4, 37, comes upon them. They're terrified because they believe that they are about to die. You you feel me? Snipe! You got me? That's where we're at. Jesus calms the storm, and he demonstrates his awesome power, even over Mother Nature. And Mark 4 concludes, in Mark 4, 41, they were terrified. First, the disciples encounter the wind and the waves and what they believe to be encroaching death. And now they're terrified at the recognition that Jesus is all-powerful. And the result is that there's, there's fear in them. That's how Mark 4 ends. And then we begin with Mark 5, verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet them. The disciples land on a foreign place. Among tombs, and a demon-possessed man storms out to meet them. Snipe! You got me? Like this, this whole situation has been terrifying, if not traumatizing, for these poor disciples. And I want to take just a minute, though, just sort of setting the stage and realizing sort of where the disciples had stepped into. And I want to deal with the, with the, with the man that comes to them. I want to deal with, with the demon-possessed man for a minute. This is one of your first times at Christ City. Welcome. We're going to talk about demons now. The topic's come up a few times in our journey through Mark's gospel. This is the presence of what the gospel writer often calls impure spirits, or what the Bible translators often call demons. In Mark 5, there's two different words that are used to name the same phenomenon, which is this that this being that is holding sway over the man living in the tombs. Impure spirits is an interesting way to translate it. Uh, it sounds kind of a bit quaint, but the word used in the original Greek is akarthatos, and it just means impure or defiled or evil. A word later in the story, in Mark 5, 12, uh, is a different word that simply means evil angel or demon. And the word that gets translated is demon. And What it is, is it's that which was controlling the man and making his lived reality, in many respects, a living hell. 
Now, whether we're newer to faith uh, in Jesus or, or whether we've been following Jesus for quite some time, sometimes it can be hard to, to know what to make of demons when they occur in the Bible. For sophisticated 21st century Americans, frankly, sometimes reading stories about demons can seem unsettling or fear-producing or even just awkward. A few things to say about it. The, the Bible assumes the existence of things that are beyond what we can see. The Bible makes clear for the reader that the world isn't just physical, but it's also spiritual. Just as there are physical realities and beings, the Bible assumes that there are also spiritual realities and beings as well. God's Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, is a part of that spiritual reality and is, a, and is able to affect our lives and the world for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of salvation, and for the sake of flourishing in the world. And as we've mentioned before, there are also unholy spirits. In Mark 5, impure spirits is the word that's used that are also a part of the world that we together inhabit. Now, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about the origins of demons, but what it does say is that it's a story that is rooted in rebellion. by uh, Rebellion by the chief of demons, the one that the Bible calls Satan or the devil. Now, both instances, by the way, Satan and devil, those words that we use, they're actually transliterated words from the Hebrew and from the Greek words. We just take those words and then give them English names. But the translation of those words, both in Hebrew and in Greek, means adversary and accuser. Names that indicate the way that the enemy of God and the enemy of humanity works in the world and the way, in ways that are both seen and unseen. The enemy is an adversary. The enemy is an accuser. The enemy is one who is deceptive. In the brief stories of Satan's origins, the Bible says that Satan was an angel that rebelled against God, seeking God's fame and God's glory and God's power for himself. And in response, God cast Satan and the other angels intent on Satan's unholy revolt, sends him out of God's kingdom. And from there, Satan and the impure spirits that followed Satan set about continuing the frustration of the advance of God's kingdom in every life and every sphere of life. Demons carry out the work of their master. Just as the devil looks to deceive and to frustrate and to accuse and to dishearten, this too is the work of impure spirits, those that follow the evil one. The demonic work that's found in... That demonic work of frustration, of, of accusation, of deception, that work found expression in the life of this lone man living on the far side of the Sea of Galilee that had taken up residence, residence in tombs, and the accuser began to wage war in the man's mind and on his soul. And that's where Jesus found him. I think when we come across um, the sort of demons, I think there's a, a few sort of contemporary responses that we may have whenever we encounter demons in, in the Scripture. Um, as with so many things, we can kind of occupy polar, kind of polar opposites of a spectrum, one with uh, an overemphasis on demons and the demonic, and then on the other end, an underemphasis, if not even a denial of their existence. In C.S. Lewis' classic novel uh, on this topic, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which humanity can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. 
and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. For some, there may be a temptation to overemphasize and to focus on the who's and the where's and the when's and how-to-for's of countering demonic forces. I've seen in some Christians and some Christian traditions, they just kind of lose their self in sort of this research vortex of demons and demonology, and it can seem to me as though they are so enamored with the power of unclean spirits that they just lose their awe of the Holy Spirit. Or their faith begins to look like some form of Christian magic that requires the right words and incantations, lest the Spirit of the Almighty become powerless to save, if we would just say the right words. I, just, I simply don't see Jesus nor the disciples engaging with demons in this way. There's a matter-of-factness about their engagement with the oppressive and accusatory nature of the enemy. Jesus and those that follow Jesus, they simply tell the enemy and the enemy's followers that God is greater and that God is the healer, that God is the, the truth-teller, and they are not. And in light of God's truth, in light of Jesus' salvation, in light of the gospel, the enemy is cast out. For others, there's an underemphasis, if not a dismissal or even denial of the presence of demonic forces in our lives and in our midst. One of my all-time favorite movies, it's a bit old now, um, is the 1995 mystery, um, The Usual Suspects. I don't know if anybody's seen this one. And in the closing scene, one of the protagonists, I don't know if I can call him protagonist, he's a bad guy, but one of the protagonists, Verbal Kent, he delivers a, a brilliant piece of monologue. Uh, at the end, and he says that he says one of the most memorable lines of the film. And he says this: "The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist." For some of us, demonic presence—it's an open question. And for those on this end of the spectrum, it might be easier to read Mark five and believe that the man is simply suffering from a mental illness or some, of some sort or another rather than suffering under the oppressive forces of the demonic. And he may well have had and been battling mental or emotional or psychological trauma. That may well be true. Living in isolation and exile from one's community, it weighs upon a spirit in painful and traumatizing ways, no doubt. And yet the Bible won't allow us to hold a purely physical or physiological case for the man's suffering. Jesus won't allow it. Because the world isn't only physical, but it is spiritual as well. And so rather than being excessive in our attention to demons or dismissive of them, the scriptures seem to point us towards a response that is neither foolish on the one hand or dismissive on the one hand or fearful on the other. In 1 Peter 5, the apostle uh, who was with Jesus in this place, the apostle Peter gives us counsel on how we're to consider the presence of the one who would seek to kill and steal and destroy and oppress and wound. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says to us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. We're to be alert and to be sober, and we're to be rooted in the faith. We aren't called to become experts in the art of demon-fighting strategy. Rather, we are to be faithful followers of the one who saves always. That is so much of what we see in Mark 5. 
Well, Jesus and the disciples, when they, when they land on the shore of the region of the Gerasenes, it, it's important to remember just how disorienting this would have been for the disciples. They were in a region that was culturally and religiously quite different from their own. It was a place that had often been hostile to people like them. It was a foreign place. It was a Gentile region. And the first thing that they see is a man coming uh, to them out of the tombs. Verse 2, let's look again. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. For he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore, tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. What's so striking about this man is that, is that he is a, he's a tormented contradiction. The demons are they're governing his existence and they have twisted him in so many ways. First, it becomes clear that much of his life was lived in response to those forces that are driving him. He is not himself. He is, he is captured and captivated by an impure spirit. He doesn't govern his own life. Secondly, he's living in a place of death. He's living in the tombs. He's living in a place that's set aside for the dead to dwell. And this would have been doubly startling to the disciples because according to Jewish tradition, tombs were considered ritually unclean. And so now we have an unclean spirit possessing an unclean person in an unclean place. And this is who is first up to Jesus following the mother of all sea storms. And the man is unable to be bound. He is, he is, he's strong. No one can hold him. And yet he is very much bound. Verse 3 says that no one could bind him, not even with chains. The, the man was incredibly strong, so strong that he could break the chains and the irons that were on his feet. But somehow he wasn't able to break free from the compulsions that had dictated his life. Addictions that were fed by the demonic forces residing in his soul. Uh, this past week, um, on the morning commute to school, I was driving the kids. We were listening to a, uh, this story may not go well, but we were listening to a story about, um, about Blackjack. You guys know, 21? And it was a story, it was a podcast about a, a Christian Blackjack team. All right? And they were, they were card players, and they were all like youth pastors and like kid city leaders, and they had formed a Blackjack team, and they made millions of dollars so <laughs> what um what they did was they had learned how to count cards mathematically in a mathematically kind of accurate way and they used those analytic skills to make millions of dollars playing jack blackjack in casinos across the country now during the course of the podcast um the narrator mentions that one of the challenges that the players faced was a traditional belief that gambling was a sin now as soon as uh, the podcast said that um, it went on to say the Christian card players, they actually had to show each other and they had to show like their church members because they asked their church members to invest in this economic venture. So they did like PowerPoint presentations to explain the math about why this wasn't gambling. This was just math. So they went through this whole thing. <laughs> and so they're explaining this. And at some point in the podcast, my, my son looks at me and he's like, wait a minute, gambling's a sin? 
And it was like, I don't know if you guys know, like, the scene in Nacho Libre where Nacho is like, wrestling is a sin. And they're like, what? Wrestling's a sin? It was like that, but about blackjack in the car on the way to school at 8 o'clock in the morning. And so, now, I come from a family of card players and just in card hustlers, really, would probably be a better way to describe it. And so, you know, the conversation gets a little uncomfortable for me for a minute, and I kind of hem and haw, but finally I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. I guess. And he's like, well, why? And I said, well, the thing is, is that because gambling in its worst forms, it's addictive. And it, and it can control us. It can compel us in ways that we, that we don't otherwise want to be compelled. Even when we don't want to. And that can crowd out ways that God's spirit wants to guide us. And when we're governed by something other than Jesus, well, that's a life that's, that's decidedly less than what God has designed for us. Mark may have well described it or explained it as saying that could be an, an impure spirit that's compelling you and controlling you. Verse 5 of Mark 5 says that the man would, would, would cut himself and that he would cry out in anguish. Even in the dialogue with Jesus in the first verses, you can hear the anguish and the pain, and you can hear kind of the, the terror in the man's voice. He's, he's talking to the one who can save him, and even still, his words are pained. When he gets to Jesus, he says, or, or rather he shouts uh, at the top of his voice, what do you want with me? In God's name, don't torture me. He's saying this to the one who wants to bring healing. Jesus asks the man, uh, he asks him his name, to which the demons reply through the man that his name is Legion. And this language, by the way, is the language of empire. A legion was the name of a squadron of Roman soldiers. Roman legions typically, they numbered in the thousands. And so for the first hearers of this story, they would have immediately connected the spiritual bondage of this man with the physical bondage that they were experiencing under Roman occupation. First century Jews, they understood what it was to be held captive by thousands of Roman soldiers. They knew, as this man did, the power of an oppressive legion. Neither is it lost on the reader that this man, though living alone, was possessed by the many. Though he was isolated, he was filled with thousands that sought his undoing. And yet Jesus heals. Jesus, in an act of mercy and power, Jesus casts out the demons, sending them into a herd of 2,000 pigs. The act, it kills the pigs, but it saves the man. The story concludes in a dramatic fashion as we, the, as we see the, the transformation of the man. Verse 15 when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And then three verses later, verse 18, and Jesus was getting into the boat, and the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go to your own home. Go home and to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away. And began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. 
And all the people were amazed. This is, this is what Jesus does and can do. This is the liberating and freeing and healing power of God on display in the life of this man. A man once possessed by impure spirits, presumably thousands of them, is now possessed by the one Holy Spirit. A man who was living in the dead places is now in the Decapolis, which means the ten cities. He's in a place of, uh, uh, of life and of flourishing, surrounded by people created in God's image. A, a man who could not be bound was now truly free because of the words and the work of Christ. A man who would cry out in anguish now cries out the good news of God's mercy and how much the Lord has done for him. Do you hear the reversals of what's happened? Church, this is what Jesus offers not just to this man in Mark 5, but to us as well. The church, uh, the, church the Lord offers healing and freedom if we would but place our faith and our trust in him. The story ends with this with this powerful epilogue that I think is instructive for us. The man is healed. He's, he's fully healed. And he's gained a new life and a new freedom because of Jesus. And then he's, he's sent out to participate in the freedom and salvation of others. Mark 5.20 says, So the man went away and began to tell how much Jesus had done for him. The people were amazed. You see, the thing is, once, once freedom has been experienced, there's a, there's a compulsion, there's an, an obligation to bear witness to that liberation that has been secured by Jesus. And it is actually this witness, it is this testimony that contributes likewise to the salvation of others. In Revelation 12, it says that we that we experience victory over the enemy, that we experience victory over the one who is our accuser, the one who would frustrate our lives, the one who seeks to bind us up. The way that we experience victory over the enemy in verse 11 is, says this, that they triumphed over the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. That's what this man in Mark 5 embodies. In other words, the way that we participate in securing freedom for others is through Christ's work and the testimony of Christ's work in our lives. If you want to know what are the secret ingredients, the secret steps for performing an exorcism of demons, it appears to be restating the truth that Jesus saves and then give testimony as to how Jesus has rescued you. That's it. Church, let us be a people that receive the, the grace and the mercy and the salvation and liberation that Jesus offers us. And let us be those that bear witness, that give testimony to what God has done in our lives. How good God has been and the mercy that we have experienced. For in that is not only our own salvation, but the salvation of others. That which was received by the man in Mark 5 was also received by the people in the Decapolis. Let us be Mark 5 types of people.
Will you pray for us? Spirit of God, we we do say that you are welcome here. We pray that you would move in this place and in these people, God, for the sake of your kingdom. God, we pray that you would be one that even in this morning and in this moment that you might, that we might experience your your mercy and your goodness towards us. Holy Spirit, there there may be those even in this room that are experiencing a measure of bound upness because of the work of the enemy. Lord, we don't we don't fear that. We don't and we don't deny it, God, but we just look into those places and Maybe we proclaim to one another, God saves. There's another spirit that's stronger. There's another spirit that is, that is wiser, that is more truthful, that is more honest, that is more embracing. Child of God, are there areas of your life where the enemy has had control over. And you need the Spirit of God to loose you from that bondage, to heal you from that wound, to free you from that snare. Child of God, what you need to know this morning is that Jesus saves. He saved the man that was in the tombs, and he saves you wherever you are. Spirit, I pray that you would just stir that. Whoever's in this spot, it just says that there's, there's an area of my life where I just feel bound. I feel stuck. Spirit of God, I pray that you would minister to them now. Child of God, who do you need to tell your testimony to? Who in your life needs to hear again or for the first time that God is still in the business of healing and freeing and liberating. Child of God, loose your tongue. Return to your Decapolis and tell of what God has done for you, not for your sake or for the Lord's, but for the care and compassion of others.